so, uh, we are continuing our series um, on the doctrines of grace, and we mean that generally uh, to encompass both the five solas and the uh, five points of Calvinism. Uh, and so, as we do that, uh, I have a quick question for you guys. If you look up on the screen behind me, how many of you have ever seen these books before? How many of you have seen these? Ever seen them? Only a couple of you? Okay. Uh, so these books are called, um, generally, they're called Four Dummies. Okay. So they have hundreds and hundreds of these books, and they always put a, a different word at the beginning, um, whatever you're likely struggling to achieve in your life. And uh, it's meant for you, uh, because that means you are a dummy, and you need this book, okay? So here's a couple of examples behind me. We've got ACT prep for dummies. Okay, some of you might be taking the ACT soon. This might be for you, okay? Uh, pickleball for dummies, uh, which is growing in popularity. So if you feel clueless, then please pick up a copy. Uh, Minecraft basics for dummies, very interesting. And then budgeting for dummies, for those of you who are not fiscally responsible. So there's a, there's, like I said, there's hundreds of these books. There's so many. Um, and they, they fall under the category of self-help books. Their purpose is to help you gain more knowledge and expertise in a certain field. These books are not meant to be read through in one sitting. Instead, they're supposed to be a reference book that you come back to every time that you're stuck and you're not sure how to move forward. So these for dummy books are referential self-help books, and they have a place, and they can be helpful for some people. However, Christians can often get into a habit of treating the Bible like one of these books. We treat the Bible as a reference book that we only go to when we have already tried everything else. However, the Bible is not like that at all. It should not be our last resort. It should be our first thought. And this was the view of the early Christians, and the reformers. And it should be our understanding of scripture as well. Maybe further away from me, maybe. So stop screaming. Let's try that. So that, this should be our understanding of scripture as well. And tonight we're continuing our, uh, our series on the doctrines of grace. And we're talking about the first of the five solas. Tonight we're talking about sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And as we will see, the importance of this doctrine cannot be overstated. How we are to view the word of God will determine everything. It will determine how we go about our lives, and it impacts every single decision that we make. Far from being a referential self-help book, the Bible deserves not only our attention, but our devotion and our submission. And as we look at particular doctrines concerning the Bible, here is what we will come to find. Develop a proper understanding of Scripture, because it alone reveals God's gospel to mankind. We must develop a proper understanding of Scripture because it alone reveals God's gospel to mankind. Now, when I say that we must develop a proper understanding of Scripture, I do not just mean a cognitive recognition of truths. I do mean that, but there is more to it than that. We must not only mentally understand God's word, we must grow to love and desire God's word. I want you to listen to how David admires the word of God in Psalm 119. Here's just a couple of verses from Psalm 119. Verse 47, he says, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. In verse 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In verse 105, he says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
David found delight in knowing God's word. His study of God's word led to ultimate happiness, and that is my hope for each of you. As we talk about the doctrine of scripture alone, that's my hope for you. So we're going to break it down into three categories, three different important doctrines that we must understand about scripture. And as a result, we'll grow to love God's word. The first is the authority of scripture. The authority of scripture. So for each of these three points, I'm going to walk us through what it is, why it's important, and a common objection that often comes with it. One of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issue of the Reformation, was over authority. As we talked about last time we met, the Roman Catholic Church had placed authority in places where it did not belong. For the church in that day, authority was found in the Bible, yes, but also in the Pope and in his councils. This view led the church to where it was at the time of the Reformation. Doctrines were invented that were not found anywhere in Scripture and often, at times, were antithetical to the Bible. So in a way, the church in that day actually put the authority of the Pope and councils over the authority of the Bible. And this is why one of the first solas that came from the Reformation is sola scriptura, Scripture alone. The Reformers recognized that there needed to be a return to the clear teachings of Scripture, that God's word alone was the ultimate authority. And the reformers rightly realized that there are two different types of authority. There's two types. There's ministerial authority and magisterial authority. Ministerial authority is that authority which has power but ultimately answers to a greater authority. So, for example, your parents are without a doubt the top authority figures in your lives. Their authority should be respected and trusted by each of you. But their authority is not the final authority because God has placed them in the positions that they are in. And they therefore serve God as they practice authority over you. That would be ministerial authority. Now, magisterial authority is that authority which is ultimate and unrivaled. So God, in the example I gave, is, is the magisterial authority. Your parents serve the one with ultimate authority. And another example of magisterial authority is the Bible. Since the Bible is God's word, it must be given absolute authority over all things. The Roman Catholic Church failed to recognize what properly fell into these two categories of ministerial and magisterial authority. According to them, the ultimate authority, the magisterial authority, was not just reserved for the Bible. The Pope was also given this level of authority, since he is believed to be the spokesperson for God on this earth. The tradition of the church was also placed on the same level as the Bible, in councils, and they were given more authority than they ought to have been given. So the reformers, in response, insisted that it was Scripture alone that held the ultimate position of authority in the life of the Christian. Luther famously stated that popes and councils could err, but the word of God could never be wrong. And this statement added fuel to the fire of the Reformation. So to affirm the statement that the Bible is authoritative is to say that the Bible is the ultimate authority in all matters of truth and Christian living. And we find this to be important for a number of reasons. For, for, um, for one reason, upholding the authority of the Bible affirms that the Bible is from God himself. 
So in order to take a deep dive into the doctrine of the authority of Scripture, we have to learn an important word. And that word is inspiration. When we use the word inspiration, when, when you and I use that word, we're, we're probably talking about how after experiencing something, we were moved to do something else. So, for example, uh, me and my roommate in college, uh, we went through a season where every night we watched uh, one episode of Bob Ross painting. You guys know who I'm talking about? I don't know why we did that, um, but we did. And so we would just watch an episode of Bob Ross paint. And after he'd paint, every time I'd think, you know what? I am inspired to go create my own masterpiece. And so we actually, our floor held an event where everyone watched an episode of Bob Ross painting, and we all tried to paint like him. And none of them, none of them turned out even close to what Bob Ross accomplished in those 30 minutes, right? But that's what we often think of when we talk about the word inspired, right? I was inspired to create my own masterpiece, right? But this is not what we mean when we say the Bible is inspired. The word inspired comes from 2 Timothy 3.16, which says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the phrase breathed out by God is the Greek word thea nuestos, which literally means God breathed. The KJV, the King James Version, translates it like this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So this is where we get the term inspiration. When we say that the Bible is inspired, we are saying that it is breathed out by God and given to us directly from him. This is the doctrine of inspiration, and it is what gives the Bible its authority. The Bible is not simply another book written by men. There is something special or authoritative about the Bible. Another important passage for us to consider is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter touches on the same ideas as Paul conveys in 2 Timothy. He says that prophecies, which, is, which are the scriptures, do not simply come from wise men. The men who authored the Bible were led by the ultimate author of the Bible. I had a professor in college put it this way. There were many writers of, of the Bible, but there is one author. There's one author of the Bible. And the Holy Spirit carried these men along to write exactly what God would have them write, but not at the expense of their specific writing styles and education levels. For example, when you read the writings of John in New Testament Greek, you'll find that his writings are much simpler, basically on a, an elementary or middle school level writing, when compared to those of the author of Hebrews, who was very educated. His writings were more likely a collegiate level of writing. So the authors still kept their specific writing styles and their idiosyncrasies while being led by the Holy Spirit to write God's very words. So as we have seen, the Bible is authoritative because it's been given to us by God through his Holy Spirit. And this is incredibly important. It's not just the product of man. And it's not another authority on par with all the others in our lives. It is the authority, the magisterial authority that ought to rule over us in every way. Now, one of the most common objections to this idea of the authority of Scripture is, is this idea. Some people will say, using Bible verses to affirm the authority of the Bible is circular reasoning. Now, how many of you have taken a logic class? You ever taken a logic class? 
So if you've taken a logic class, you might have learned what circular reasoning is. Okay, it's this idea where you begin with a thing that you're planning to end with. And many people consider that a logical fallacy, and it is. But here's the answer to this. We must appeal to the Bible for its authority because there is no higher authority to possibly appeal to. There is not an endless chain of authority going up and up and up and up and never ending. It must end somewhere, and it ends with God and his word. If we go anywhere else to try and prove the authority of the Bible, then we are, in effect, stating that the Bible does not actually have authority over us. Here's the truth of the matter. This, this really gets to the heart of it. If we cannot trust what the Bible says about itself, then we cannot trust anything else that it says. If I believe that everything else contained in the Bible is true, then why should I not believe its testimony about itself? So God's word has the ultimate authority over our lives, and that should be cause for us to rejoice and praise the Lord for speaking directly to us through his word. So develop a proper understanding of scripture because it alone reveals God's gospel to mankind. So we talked about the authority of scripture, and now we come to the inerrancy of scripture. The inerrancy of scripture. Inerrancy is a word that we may not often hear or use, but it's crucial to our understanding of the Bible. The word has within itself a basic prefix and root. The prefix is in, meaning not, and errant, meaning to err or to be wrong. So inerrant literally means unable to err. Here's how inerrancy is defined in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He says, The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So Grudem defines it in the negative by saying it does not affirm anything contrary to fact. The positive way of saying it is that everything it affirms is factual. Everything it affirms is true. Grudem also points out that inerrancy applies to the original manuscripts of the Bible. So those are the actual copies that were written on by the authors of the Bible. However, this does not mean that our current Bibles are not still inerrant. It does not mean that our current Bibles somehow have errors in them. For 99% of what we read, and I'm not making that number up, that's a legitimate number. For 99% of what we read, we have full confidence that they are, in fact, what the original authors intended. We know this because of the thousands of manuscripts that agree with one another. When you compare all the thousands of manuscripts of the Bible together, they all agree with one another. And when it comes to that 1% that we're not sure about, we can still be fairly certain of what the writers were saying by comparing all of these manuscripts and the dates that they were written. And if that idea makes you uncomfortable that there's a 1% out there that we're not as confident about, it is, it, it's often, and actually it's always, little things like, did Paul write Jesus Christ or did Paul write Christ Jesus? It's always little things like that that bear no weight on the interpretation of the passage. And so therefore we can have full confidence in the inerrancy of the Bible. When we say the Bible is inerrant, we are saying that it is impossible for it to state anything other than truthful things, whether theological, historical, geographical, or otherwise. Inerrancy is important for a number of reasons. First of all, it upholds the authority of Scripture. If inerrancy is lost, then the authority of Scripture is lost too. And why is this? Because the authority of Scripture is the claim that the Bible is from God. And if the Bible is from God, 
then we should expect it to be completely free of any false statements. If it's from God, then it must be true in all that it says. The moment that we say the Bible is not errant is the moment that we strip it of its authority as well. And a second reason why inerrancy is important is related to the first. Inerrancy helps us see the divine character of Scripture. If we do not say that the Bible is inerrant, then we are approaching it as we would any other book, like a book for dummies. But if we rightly profess that the Word of God perfectly expresses the words of God, then we will see how the Bible is different from all other books. As we read the Bible and trace the themes that run throughout the entire storyline, we realize that this could never have been the invention of man. God had to have sovereignly brought about all of these prophecies and themes and stories that occur and are fulfilled and weaved and weave them into one cohesive story about his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is inerrant because it is from God, who never errs, and therefore it ought to be held with high esteem. Now, a common objection to the inerrancy of Scripture is that the Bible was written by sinful men and contains errors. Now, to the sinful men part, we must agree that these men were certainly sinners. They needed salvation just as we do. However, Scripture makes it crystal clear in 2 Peter chapter 1 that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote and therefore could not sin in their writings as the Holy Spirit led them in writing. God himself in his Spirit led them as they wrote. And to the objection that the Bible contains errors, our first response should be, where? 99% of the time, and that is a statistic I made up, but it, it's probably pretty verifiable. The person who's telling you that the Bible has errors has no idea what errors they're actually referring to. They are simply repeating what they were taught to say. They're regurgitating what society has told them to say. But in the slim, slim chance that they actually do reference some kind of error, it does not take long to recognize that what they perceive as an error is really no error at all. I don't have time to get into the examples, but there are some great resources out there that deal with this issue specifically. One in particular that I watched was a video from a Southern Seminary professor, and the video is called, Does the Bible Have Errors or Contradictions? So if you're interested in looking more into this, you can write that down. Does the Bible have errors or contradictions? It's a Southern Seminary video with a professor named Robert Plummer. Very good resource if you'd like to look into it more. So the Bible is not only authoritative, the Bible is also inerrant. So we must continue to develop a proper understanding of Scripture because it alone reveals God's gospel to mankind. Third and finally, we need to come to recognize the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture, plainly stated, is a belief that the Bible contains all that we need to know concerning the salvation God has extended to us. God has revealed himself and his gospel in Jesus Christ, and the Bible is where we go to know Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have to go to the scriptures to know God's plan of salvation. Additionally, the Bible is sufficient because it contains all that we need, not just for knowing salvation, but for living godly and upright lives. Many religions have their own Bibles that teach them how to live a good life in a morally upright way. 
However, the Bible is vastly different in that while it certainly gives us instructions to live good lives, it always roots those instructions in the gospel. The Bible teaches us not that we can do good works, but that we cannot. And it is only by abiding in the vine, Jesus Christ, that we can bear good fruit. So in looking at it this way, the Bible is sufficient for two reasons. One, it teaches us the gospel. And two, it then guides us in how to live holy lives. There are several reasons why it's crucial that we affirm this, but I'm just going to focus on one. And that's this. If we don't affirm the sufficiency of Scripture, then we will look in other places to fulfill what we think is lacking in it. This ultimately connects to the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. You can see how all of these things are connected. If we think that the Bible doesn't ultimately help us in every meaningful way, then we will in turn be denying its authority from God, as well as its truthfulness in all things. The Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation, and I would argue now, saw something lacking in the Bible that therefore needed to be supplemented by the words of the Pope and words from councils and words from tradition. John Calvin was one of the men who fought hardest for the sufficiency of Scripture over and against the Pope. Here's what he wrote in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is right, out, right off the bat. Right near the beginning, he says, It is impossible for any man to obtain even the minutest portion of right and sound doctrine without being a disciple of Scripture. He says, It's impossible for us to learn anything right and sound without actually studying the Scriptures. That is where truth is found. Now, we are not prone today to look to the Pope instead of our Bibles. At least I hope you're not prone to that. But I can guarantee that each of us has something or someone that we look to in order to guide us in doctrine outside of the scriptures. Now, I'm not talking about your parents. If your parents are godly parents, and, and all of your parents are, then they are guiding you in the scriptures. But I'm talking about things that take us away from the scriptures. I'm talking about things like social media, that some of us look, look to for comfort instead of running to the sufficient word of God. I'm talking about how some of us look to our peers for direction during difficult circumstances instead of searching out the truth-filled, all-sufficient scriptures. I'm talking about those of us who go to Google when faced with life's big questions instead of going to God's sufficient word. Do you actually believe that God's word is sufficient for you? Or are you living in such a way that the Bible is nothing more than a self-help book that may be helpful to reference every now and then? We must be able to confidently proclaim, both with our words and with our actions, that God's word contains everything that we need to live a godly life. Now, a common objection to the sufficiency of scripture is that the Bible doesn't talk about every issue. Now, when people say that, you kind of have to distinguish between two different types of issues. You've got major issues and minor issues. Minor issues would be something like brushing your teeth in the morning. Or eating a gallon of ice cream or not? Now, there's two answers to that. One, these minor things are easily understood by using common sense. Yes, I should brush my teeth so that they don't rot. And no, I shouldn't eat a whole gallon of ice cream because I'm going to get sick. That's common sense. And the second thing is, 
These minor issues do not affect our lives in any meaningful way. Remember, the Bible is not concerned with our daily hygiene habits, although that's important. It's ultimately concerned with the state of our soul before a holy and righteous God. The Bible speaks to these things because they are infinitely more important than the trivial matters of our day-to-day. Now, when it comes to major issues, such as abortion or transgenderism, it's crucial for us to recognize that while the Bible may not use these words specifically, it certainly has something to say in regards to the issues of our day. Affirming the sufficiency of Scripture does not mean that the Bible includes every important word that society is debating over. It means that the Bible has something to say about these words that we debate over. So I mentioned abortion and transgenderism. You would search the scriptures in vain to find these two exact words. You won't find them. But what you will find throughout all of scripture is the dignity and value of human life and the human body. As well as Satan's attempt to either destroy life in the case of abortion or his attempts to distort it into something it's not like in the case of transgenderism. The Bible is littered with theological concepts that ought to inform how we approach the topics of the day. So when someone comes to you and says the Bible doesn't speak to everything, and they're talking about a major issue, you can rest assured the Bible certainly speaks to these things. And I have one last note when it comes to the sufficiency of Scripture before we close. When it comes to affirming this, We will only recognize its sufficiency as we take it in more and more over time. As we study the Bible more and submit ourselves to it, we will grow in recognizing how it truly covers all areas of our lives. So if this doctrine doesn't ring very true to you now, I would encourage you to spend more time in the Word. Because as you do that, you're going to come to realize just how sufficient God's Word really is for your life. So develop a proper understanding of Scripture because it alone reveals God's gospel to mankind. Now these three doctrines just scratch the surface of the importance of God's Word. And we could go on with with more doctrines about, about the Word of God. But Scripture alone was a crucial recovery for the church because it reoriented the church back to God and what He has spoken and how He has revealed Himself. This doctrine led to many developments, such as the translation of the Latin Bible into German and English. Because the Reformers fought so firmly on the importance of Scripture alone, the Bible was translated into the languages of the people, and more people were able to read for themselves the very words of God. So as we close, I want to call you to a greater appreciation for God's Word. It's not just another self-help book, like those for dummy books. It contains the words of God, and it's still active today, as the Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures and convicts us of our sins as we read it. My prayer for all of you, and my prayer for myself, is that we not only have a greater intellectual understanding of what the Bible is, but that we also have a deeper affection for the Bible. You may be sitting there and thinking that you want the Bible to play a greater role in your life, but you're not sure what your next steps are. Well, first of all, I want to commend you for wanting the Bible to have a greater place in your life. That's a good desire. I would reiterate the words of Jesus to you. Jesus said, he who is faithful in little is faithful in much. 
He who spends a small time in the word consistently will grow in faithfulness. So I would encourage you, first of all, pray to the Lord. Instill that desire in your heart to the point where it grows and grows. I'd also encourage you to evaluate your daily schedule and find where Bible reading fits into it the best. For many people, it's in the mornings. For others, like myself, nighttime seems to be more consistent. Maybe you even have a chunk of time during the day that you can dedicate to Bible reading. No matter when, aim for even five to ten minutes of reading God's word and reflecting on it. And don't look at it as something to just get it over with. Rather, view it as an opportunity to hear God speak in his word. And when you miss a day, and you likely will, don't beat yourself up over it and give up. Just be faithful and little and start back up again. There is nowhere else that we can go. Salvation has been extended to us through God the Son, who has been revealed in God's word, in God's word alone. And that is the crucial doctrine of Scripture alone. That's what the Reformers fought so hard for. And like I, like I told you guys, the, the Reformers didn't invent this doctrine. They were returning to what the church had always believed and always practiced. So let's seek out the truths that are contained there and confidently affirm the authority, inerrancy, and sufficiency of the Bible.